this week on Writers Inc. And so I think a lot of it is is to always write from the center of character. Like some people say, well, what do you think comes first or is more important character or plot? And I think plot is character and motion. I don't make a distinction between the two. And so if I'm really approaching this as Evan, the way he talks and what he's gonna look for and how he's gonna fight and how he's gonna strategize, they're all gonna be very specific. And if I ever write something where he reacts the way that any ordinary person or another character would act, then I don't have the right level of specificity. I'm still doing it too general. I need to go back and figure out what's the flourish, what's the touch that turns over another card about the character who is, who is Evan Smoke and make sure I'm always writing from that position. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and a panel of industry powerhouses as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. Hi, it's Christine Daigle. It's Jenna Brown. Kevin Tomlinson. And I'm J.D. Barker. Welcome to Writer's Inc. So today is my 10th wedding anniversary. Happy anniversary. Oh, yeah. Happy anniversary. Got up all, all excited. Had, you know, we had stuff planned, you know, like dinner out and this and that. And our daughter woke up and she's got pink eye. Oh, <laughs> so, oh no. So, yeah. We, we don't know <laughs> where. Take out oh. anniversary. Yeah. We don't know where she got it. I mean, she's in first grade, you know, so that kind of stuff just sort of happens. Um, but like she came home last night, she went to ski practice with her mom and like, she's my, my, my eye hurts and like, it's all gunked up and nasty and like, we've seen it before. We know what it is. So, um, oh, man, ten, 10th anniversary date night has turned into Domino's pizza night. I think <laughs> Domino's pizza and disinfect everything. Are you going to get a heart shaped pizza? Are they still, are, they still have the Valentine's heart-shaped pizza. You can have heart-shaped dominoes for your. Do they? Oh, there we go. That that sounds like a good compromise. They do it for <laughs> they do it for Valentine's Day. Yeah, it's cool. So yeah, so that's what's going on over here. I, Chris, you're doing brain stuff, right? Yeah. So we're we're um, starting a brain computer interface at work. So for my day job, I'm a neuropsychologist. So we're using it for kids with uh, neuromotor um, disorders. So kids who really have no functional use of their body. A lot of them don't have speech. So we just started putting that project into place this week uh, with our first number one kiddo who was stellar textbook. Uh, you know, she doesn't speak, doesn't move, controlled all kinds of things wearing this headset. It's basically a listening device, so it doesn't emit anything. It just listens to your brain like an EEG. And so you're going between like a resting state and and an arousal state, and she was operating all kinds of things. She had a pitching machine. She was throwing balls to her mom. Her dad cried. It was amazing. So that's so yeah, cool. Yeah, it's been a cool week, but it's been an exhausting week. Yeah, that's awesome. stuff. Always makes me think of that Super Bowl commercial with Christopher Reeves, where they show him like walk out from the side, and he goes up to a podium after he'd been paralyzed. Yeah, um, it, yeah, it's fascinating. They're stuff. using so it for you, some of that stuff. So you, yeah, you've actually used it, right? So like, does it tire you out in some way? Like, do you get some kind of brain fatigue from from using? I it? was, yeah. I it takes a lot of concentration and focus. So I was pretty tired after about 20, 25 minutes of using it. Um, some of our our kiddos, like we have ones that in a clinical setting that I've been learning with before we bring it uh, to where I work, they're stellar. They can do it for 45 minutes, concentration. They can paint. They can, you know, turn their YouTubes on and off, and they can do all kinds of things. So the kids are better at it than I am. But, yeah, I did find it pretty cognitively fatiguing, yeah. So do you have to, like, I, I guess you have to consciously think about what it is you want to do. So, like, if this were to translate, like, I want to lift my left arm, you have to think about lift left arm, and, and then you actually do it, like that kind of thing? Yeah, so you can have, um, I think they have up to five motor commands uh, for uh, the more you train. So the basic is just like a resting state. So you're just kind of quiet mind, not thinking about anything. And then the other is like a motor imagery. So you can think of like pushing or jumping. And so when you activate the motor strip in your brain, it activates whatever you're connected to. So if you're playing a video game in your quiet state, you'd be stops and in your active state you would be running jumping you can have you know a second command so if you're thinking maybe jump for 
running and jumping and kick for attacking an enemy. So you can use different signals to program it with your brain to do different things. It's pretty cool. That is so cool. So if you're using this for, for motor skills, um, you know, like if let, let's say somebody's going to walk with something like this, are they going to have to physically think left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, like over and over again? Or is this going to somehow evolve into you know the way we walk now where we don't have to think about it? Yeah, it's really interesting because um, one of the kids we were doing, she was thinking clap. So she had to clap like kind of physically. She has a little bit of movement. So she's trying to clap. Um and then it, after a few minutes, she wasn't clapping anymore. And then she could uh, activate without clapping and clap without activating. So she, whatever's going on, the brain's kind of a black box, but it gives you that feedback. So you're getting that feedback between, okay, I want it to go. I want it to not go. I want to jump. I want to attack an enemy. And that different signals in your brain that it's reading is controlling the output. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's pretty fascinating. It's and like- we're doing it non-invasive. Just with headsets, you can buy them commercially. There are ones where they implant. We're not doing that, but we're not doing the Elon Musk, but the headsets are pretty amazing. It's a little little like learning to juggle, right? Like you, when you first start to learn to juggle or anything, activity like that, you have to think about it. You have to, you know, you're going to get clumsy with it. It's going to be exhausting. And then eventually it just becomes habitual or becomes like ingrained and it's automatic at that point. Yeah. I read a study once that said they were, they had put a bunch of people, I don't know what kind of brain machine, I don't remember, um, where they would read a book and they were like tracking where in the brain it lights up. And they were basically saying like, your brain doesn't know the difference between like reading an action sequence and doing the action sequence. And so like, if you were reading an action oriented book, like, you know, those areas of your brain would light up. Whereas if it was like a quiet or moment in the book, it was like, and I thought that was just fascinating. And it kind of makes sense. Like what you're saying, like you think about different areas of your brain and it just lights up and then your brain just thinks that you're doing it. Yeah, that's it. That's why I read about doing sit-ups. I'm on on the trail for that six pack. Uh, Unfortunately, it just lights up the brain, not the, the muscles, but I mean, maybe a little bit, but yeah, so that's exactly what it is. So if you're jumping or you're thinking jumping, that same area is lighting up in your brain. So yeah, it's pretty neat. That is fascinating. So Kevin, you need the headset. That that's, You're missing the headset. If you get the headset, then the headset will move your, your legs or and cause you to do crunches and you don't have to physically do it. There you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wonder if in the future, this headset, you could read a book and you could like be in a virtual reality world and like you could literally become the main character of that book that would be amazing that would be super fun yeah the way that it's progressing is is to communication so this is motor imagery where you're thinking jump um they're going to reactive so when you're wanting to communicate and thinking about your different words it's going to be picking them on the screen and it's quite fast faster than the eye gaze technology they have now so it's pretty cool that's so amazing all right kevin what is in the news well, uh, nothing as interesting as this, honestly. Uh, science fiction authors were excluded from awards for fear of offending China. Uh, there's been an update on why thriller, uh, writers, including Neil Gaiman and others, uh, and Paul Weimer, some names I can't pronounce, and Christine put them in here on purpose, she said, uh, why they had been deemed ineligible as finalists despite earning enough votes according to information published last month. Leaked emails confirmed they were excluded due to concern about how they might be perceived in China. Awards organizer Diane Lacey stated, we were told to vet nominees for work focusing on China, Taiwan, Tibet, or other topics that may be an issue in China, and to my shame, I did so. Resignations and apologies followed with organizers of the next Hugo Awards promising transparency and efforts to rebuild trust. And these guys have a long history of losing trust, unfortunately. I'm confused though. Like, did we miss something here? Like, why are they worried about offending China with the Hugo Awards? Um, I have that question too. Because uh, that's where they are this year. They're taking place in China this year, the Hugo Awards. Oh. So, th- so that was the yeah. reason. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's just mind blowing to me that they thought nobody would notice because the votes are public. So you can clearly yeah. see that these authors got the most votes, but didn't show up on the ballot. So it's wild. Wow. Yeah. That's okay. atrocious. So a lot of lessons have been learned here, right? Like number one, don't hold your uh, your awards in China because uh, <laughs> it, they don't have free speech, and uh, there are other problems. So there you go. Uh, avoid that whole pot of worms, or uh, well, 
can of worms. I got can it. Of worms. I got it wrong. Pile, pile of worms. Yeah. Can of worms. <laughs> yeah. Pile of worms. Uh, avoid that too. All right. Uh, w- did anybody want to add any more to that or should I move on? We don't want to, we don't want to tick off China. No, I just put this next article in for you to read to you, Kevin. I just, I'm, waiting <laughs> for it. I'm up for this one. Sexually ever after how romance bookstores took over America. John Lynn uh, Scrogum opened a romance novel bookstore, a novel romance in Louisville, Kentucky with modest expectations, quickly surpassing her annual sales projections within two months, driven by social media and word of mouth. The rise of dedicated romance bookstores is a growing trend in the U.S., with at least eight opening in 2023 and more in 2024, attracting customers nationwide and even internationally. Romance novels' popularity has surged, with U.S. print book sales doubling over three years. The genre promises central love stories and a happily ever after or happy for now ending catering to a variety of spice levels. The ripped bodice, the first romance bookstore in the U S opened in Los Angeles six years ago, overcoming skepticism and criticism to become a reality through a successful Kickstarter campaign. New romance bookstores offer a vibrant welcoming space for fans hosting book clubs and author events and featuring decor suited for social media. They also serve as inclusive communities for romance readers, challenging previous stigmas associated with the genre. So this makes sense for romance because romance is the the largest selling genre of of all the books. Um, I think you could probably pull it off for thrillers, maybe um, with it being the second. Um, But when you start drilling down, you're like a store just for Westerns or a store for Amish steampunk or, you know, even a, a book store for just horror. You know, like that, yeah. that's, that's a tricky thing. I, I don't know that, that that would work. I mean, I would love to walk into a horror bookstore, but I just, I don't know that you could do it. I think you could pull it off though. Maybe. With, if, if, if it's not just books, like for example, there's a bookstore here in Austin. I don't remember the name of it, but I visited and it sells mostly um, sci-fi fantasy and a lot of manga stuff, but also sells like, you know, art supplies and things like that. that the very expensive, like pro level art supplies. So it knows the audience that it's catered to. So I could see you kind of pulling stuff like that off. That's key, right? Is the, the audience. Cause like I, I could see like, we're close to Salem, Massachusetts, you know, like it's packed every day with, with tourists. Um, they could easily get away with, with, you know, something like a horror related bookstore. Like that's what people want. You know, when they walk into a bookstore in Salem, they're not looking for a romance novel. They want something about witches. Um, so yeah, I guess if you cater to the, you know, you really have to think about location, I think quite a bit with this. Yeah. And I I think what's key there, they said, is, you know, it's a welcoming space and the decor, like, again, it's pointing to that importance now of community and of, of having a space where people want to have like-minded discussions. You're finding your people. So I think that's what makes those things so successful is where you can come and talk about the stuff that you love. There's a um, a new bookstore that somebody sent me a link to. It's called Vignette Books, and they basically send you a, a like you don't pick the book. You basically log in, you create an account, you say that I am a fan of X or whatever the genre is, and they send you a book in that genre. So it's basically like a surprise rather than a you know like a book box once a month oh. you get a, a book um, based on that genre. It could be a new book, a used book, uh, which is kind of a, a unique idea. There's, I'm seeing a lot of these you know little one off type scenarios popping up, and you know we'll we'll see I guess in a couple of years which ones play out. That's that's like that whole the date with a book idea. Where the blind date do. with a book. Well, I know Jenna, you do a Luma crate. Do you know what books you're getting before you get them? Like, can you opt out, or are they surprises? Well, they're supposed to be surprises, but um, like, there's enough people who um, like there's different groups on social media that you can join if you don't like the surprise, and they're actually pretty good because um, you know. The way a lot of like Illumicrate and Fairy Loot, um, they'll put like clues in their announcement. And um, if it, a lot of people are either just really good at it or have the time and they I don't think they've ever been wrong. Um, so you can get a good idea of what you're getting if you want to or you can just have it be a surprise. But you can also um, opt out like if you don't like the theme, you know, mm. like if they say it's a you know, Greek retelling and you're not into that, you can skip. Um, 
So. My daughter gets a box of children's books every every month. I think there's five in there, and you basically have a week or so to return the ones you don't want. So they give you a prepackaged label to send back. Um, you know, you keep the ones you want, you send back the ones you don't. Um, she's been doing that, uh, I guess, for about three years now, and, and she likes that quite a bit. So yeah, it's it's cool to see these these different things. That's cool. See, the equivalent we had to this when I was a, when I was growing up was the library when they whenever they'd clear their shelves and they they'd put books out by the dumpster. That's what our equivalent of this was. Boxo <laughs> yeah. books. So, uh, did OpenAI Sora just kickstart the era of generative video? OpenAI has, has developed Sora, a text to video model cap- capable of generating photorealistic videos from text prompts advancing AI technology significantly. This innovation presents vast potential for creative fields, but raises ethical concerns, including the risk of scams and the creation of non-consensual content. OpenAI is, that's porn by the way, OpenAI is implementing safeguards and developing tools to identify harmful content, highlighting the need for responsible use and regulatory measures to manage the risks associated with this powerful technology. What an era to be alive. Yeah, I, I saw some of these videos. They just popped up on my, my Twitter or X feed, um, and they were coming from OpenAI. And I, I, I don't even follow OpenAI, so I'm not quite sure why it ended up in, in my feed. But the videos themselves were amazing. I mean, I, I'm not going to you know, downplay them. They were really, really good. Yeah. Um, apparently, the system can create a video up to a minute long, which is impressive. Um, I don't know when it's going to be available publicly, but you know, that's where the technology is today. You know, who knows where it's going to be in another year, but like, you know, if they're able to produce one minute at a time, multiple camera angles too, which really surprised me. Like it can take the same scene and show you, you know, over the course of that minute, it can cut from one camera to another. Um, it's very complex stuff and it, it looks very good now. So like a year from now, five years from now, there is no telling where this stuff is going to be. Yeah, I know I was bugging you guys. I'm like, come on, Sam Altman's uh, X feed. You got to look at what he's doing because people were just throwing prompts and he was throwing videos up very, very quickly, which was pretty stunning. And they were really high quality videos. Yeah, so be interesting to see where that goes. This episode is brought to you by Autocrit. One of the most value-packed memberships for any author, Autocrit brings you an amazing suite of tools that make it a breeze to plan, write, and edit your books all in one place. Autocrit takes you far above standard grammar checking or cookie cutter guidance. Instead, it's like having an experienced editor in your genre watching over your shoulder to help you deliver great writing that keeps your audience trapped in the story. You can even compare your writing style to more than 100 best-selling authors right down to the word level. So you can see what the best in the business do to keep their storytelling clean, clear, and crisp. Listeners of the Writers Inc. podcast can now take advantage of lifetime membership for one single fee. That's right, no renewal fees. Hi, this is JD Barker. I've used Autocrit for years, and not only has it improved my writing, but it's been a crucial tool with aspiring authors that I've mentored. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just beginning, it'll help you find your weak spots and weed them out. Give it a shot with your latest project. Trust me, your editor will thank you. Head to autocrit.com slash JD to get your lifetime membership. Big thanks to Autocrit for sponsoring the show. All right. And with that, JD, who is up this week? This week, we've got Greg Hurwitz. Greg is the New York Times bestselling author of numerous novels. His latest is part of his long-running Orphan X series, and it's called Lone Wolf. It released about a week ago. Here he is, Greg Hurwitz. All right. Here we are. Now, um, we brought this up just before the call, but you've been on the show several times now. Uh, how's it feel to be a, re- a repeat guest on Writer's Inc.? What? I, I feel right at home, man. <laughs> I'm like Ed McMahon on the couch. You're like an unofficial co-host at this point. Uh, wow. You've talked to and you've talked to practically all of us. Uh, so great, uh, great to have you. Um, real excited about the new book. I mean, I you are so one of the things that you are involved in that that is uh, very cool to me because it's a lifelong dream of my own. Uh, is you you write for comics, uh, you write for DC and Marvel in particular, and you got some other things brewing. We can talk about any of those. Uh, but you know, one of the things that that struck me as soon as I learned about the Orphan X series was how it felt very comic book to me uh, in terms of its premise and the in the way that you handle it and everything. Is is that an influence on this series at all? Well, here's the thing. Um, 
it's it's in part some of the ideas that occurred to me when I was writing Batman have made their way into Orphan X. Now, Orphan X is a lot more grounded. It's a lot more real world. It's very character based. Yeah. But when I was writing Batman, one of the things, one of the themes that I played with a lot and I reinvented a lot of the villains for uh, the new 52. That's a lot mm -hmm. of what I was doing was rethinking Batman. But one of the ways that I played Batman that interested me the most was that, look, Batman doesn't have a magical ring. He doesn't have a, he can't fly like Superman, right? He just represents the pinnacle of what a human being can achieve if they master discipline. And, and in Batman, it's spiritual. He goes to Tibet. It's emotional. It's certainly physical. It's technology. Um, and part of why Batman can be perfect without any superpowers is because he's alone. His parents are dead. There's Robin, but Robin's always getting fucking killed, right? I mean, every time there's a new Robin, he winds up dying. He's single. He's kind of a playboy as Bruce Wayne, but he always winds up alone. And I thought a lot when I was writing Batman about this tension between perfection, which he exemplifies, and intimacy, which he has no part of. And so when I was thinking about Orphan X, you know, this is my series is based on Evan Smoke. The protagonist is taken out of a foster home at the age of 12. Um, and he's trained to be a government assassin in a off the books black program, right? He's a kid who he's a young man by the time he's done with his training, who's committing murders and no one will miss him. If he gets snuffed, if he gets thrown in a prison, if he gets tortured to pieces, no one's going to ask any questions. Um, but when I was writing it, I thought, well, what if, I'm going to place him in the real world where you and I live. Yeah. So on the one hand, he's this archetypal figure, like this assassin. He's like um, James Bond or Jack Reacher, but he goes home and is trying to figure out how to contend with the real world in a way that Batman never does. You never see Batman, you never see James Bond go home or have an awkward encounter with the elderly Jewish lady who lives downstairs <laughs> from him in the elevator. Although I'd, I'd watch that. Yeah. I would watch that movie. I know. Yeah. Well, so what we get to see is this toggling between the two. And he's he's encased in this shell of perfection. He's got his 10 assassins commandments. If he obeys them, everything goes well. It's assume nothing is the first commandment. The second commandment is how you do anything is how you do everything. There are these like black and white OCD rules. Uh, and part of what the series is really about is him shattering through all these rules and through black and white thinking to try to figure out how to speak the strange language of intimacy, which is something he was never taught. So the series is really about the process of him becoming human. So on the one hand, if there's some comic book influence, the series begins right at the point that he's breaking that all apart and thawing out of that. It's almost like it begins with him being Pinocchio, but he realizes that he wants to be a real boy. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. I so There's a, there's this thing I love about, um, in certain comics and movies and things like that when, with these recurring characters, especially uh, is this idea of seeing them in the mundane world. Some of my favorite comics were always like the, uh, like the issue of the X-Men where they were celebrating Thanksgiving together or something, you know, it was like this ridiculous premise, but it was a, uh, I don't know. Is there something, there was something about seeing these larger in life characters in mundane situations that always appealed to me. Is that, that's kind of what you're going for. So Stanley did this with Spider-Man, right? Where, you know, he's got a tear in his uniform and or in his costume and he's got to repair it and Aunt May's waiting at home. And, um, but, you know, we don't tend to see this as much with characters like Bond or Bourne or Reacher, right? Where there's this sort of quotidian concerns of ordinary people and this failure to connect. I think one of the things that's so appealing about it for me is I feel like we all have these different modes that we're in when we work, when we're striving for something, especially in a field where you're striving for excellence, um, which can be anyone in any field. And the movement out of that to try and slow down and engage with other people and all their messiness and confusion and different needs and different values and different structures, it's really is a challenge. I don't think any of us feel like we're, we're particular experts when it comes to understanding intimacy and communication. And so having Evan as somebody who's perfectly at home calculating the wind drift of a sniper round to take someone's head off, but gets totally undone if he's at the mail slots and have to, has to make like small talk. There's something that's really appealing in that. It's like taking the fantasy version and ringing it back down, wrangling it back down to real life and putting yeah. him into that. And so there's a softening that he has to figure out 
Um, and these missions for him in some ways are like, it's like he's trying to win back these little pieces of his soul. He operated for so many years for the government until he realized that, that the missions were offset from his moral compass. Um, and he was trained when he was 12, his handler and father figure, Jack Johns, trained him and told him at 12, he said, the hard part isn't making you a killer. The hard part is keeping you human. So he always had this pilot light within him not to become psychopathic and not to become a true believer. Right. And at some point that was a collision course because the missions no longer matched his own moral compass. And so in leaving the program, even going on the run from the very government that trained him, and in helping innocent people who have nowhere else to turn, who are in a desperate place, he's reclaiming his soul a piece at a time. But in doing so, he has to interact and engage with real people with real problems who are very different from the kind of heightened, clear world that he um, embodies and lives in. He's a, yeah, he's a fascinating character. I, I love seeing that all those levels or all those layers, I guess, of, of uh, you know, nuance and depth to it uh now you now you're now on the the ninth book in this right this is uh, lone wolf is number nine in uh That's right. in this series quite an accomplishment uh let's talk about the book because um first of all it's a story about a dog which is you know it makes it near and dear to my heart <laughs> but it goes into a little bit more than just uh helping to rescue a lost dog, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, Evan's coming off, you know, it opens up and he's coming off a pretty significant disruption. Uh, the last book finds him having tracked down. He's an orphan. He never knew his mom. He never knew his father. Um, you know, he was raised kind of an unknown. He was raised very much as the nowhere man who he became without a real provenance. And we met his mom or the woman claiming to be his mom in the sixth book, which is called Prodigal Son. But this book opens, Lone Wolf opens with him going up and knocking on the door of the man who who is purported to be his father, uh, who he's never met and doesn't know anything about. And we skip that part initially. He goes up and knocks on the door and we just find him in the aftermath of that. And whatever that engagement was with this man who was his father has left him bereft. It's just decimated him. And so he's drinking pretty hard for the first time. He loves his world-class vodkas, but he doesn't drink to excess. But we find him kind of undone. And so the premise of Lone Wolf really is that he gets the next Orphan X mission, the, the next Nowhere Man mission. You know, he's planning to start small to kind of rebuild and get his feet under him again after he's been sort of stripped down psychologically from whatever happened in this meeting with his father that we're going to discover and this is the smallest possible mission. A little girl has lost her dog. It's a little shitty dog, like a half, you know, gnarly chihuahua with a carbuncle on its nose that's snarly and jittery. Yeah. And it's basically the smallest, most pathetic nowhere man mission that you could possibly imagine. But when Evan goes to pursue it, he finds the mission telescopes and it goes from this little dog to something bigger to something bigger, to something bigger than that, until he finds himself at the epicenter of a giant manhunt that has masked to track him down through like multiple blocks of downtown Los Angeles. And so it just blows out into this insane action sequence. It's one of the longest suspense sequences I've ever written is I start this sort of movement of him first laying eyes on the dog. And then yeah. the situation just escalates across like a number of chapters and gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger till we finally can catch our breath with him and try and regroup. How do you temper something like that when you're as that, you know, how do you make sure the pacing stays right uh, throughout that and, and you don't lose the reader in building all that up? It's such a good question because we've all sat in those movies where, with like the never ending third act where you just yeah. feel like you're getting punched in the face with action. Yeah. And one of the things I discovered really early on, um, in writing this series is that every action sequence that features Orphan X has to also be about character. It has to further our understanding of character. Yeah. And he has to, he has to act in each circumstance in a way that only he would ask. So if it's just a car chase or a shootout where you could insert Harry Bosch or Elvis Cole or Jack Reacher, then I haven't done my job. I haven't made it specific yeah. enough. So a lot of when I'm doing a very long action sequence like this one, there's a there's the big suspense sequence that winds up with him 
on a roof and in a shootout and with, you know, SWAT teams massing and dodging different stuff. And there's a car chase and he's switching vehicles. It keeps going. But every step of it is about him and his character and the unique way that he handles things or perceives things or reacts to things so that we're not stopping to have a kind of dull, drawn out action sequence. What we're doing is continuing to engage with Orphan X, impacting the environment in all these ways that only he can so that the emotional stakes are there all the way throughout. So by the time we stop and catch our breath, we're sort of exhausted, but the plot has really transformed of what he's up against and what he has to face through the course of that scene. And so there's been movement in it, not just like we're hitting pause and having a car chase we don't really care about and then and then resuming. Yeah, you're going to have to really know that character inside and out in order to be able to pace that way. Um, what, you know, what is it you've done? I mean, you, by now, nine books in, you you know this character. Uh, but, you know, how how do you go about, you know, keeping track of that development, making, making sure that, you know, these actions are what Evan Smoke would do, not what Jack Reacher would do? Hmm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I've spent more waking hours with Evan Smoke than I have with my wife and kids, right? I mean, it's a, you know, it's the better part of a decade. Yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of it is, is to always write from the center of character. Like some people say, well, what do you think comes first or is more important character or plot? And I think plot is character and motion. Yeah. I don't make a distinction between the two. And so if I'm really approaching this as Evan, the way he talks and what he's going to look for and how he's going to fight and how he's going to strategize, they're all going to be very specific. And if I ever write something where he reacts the way that any ordinary person or another character would act, then I don't have the right level of specificity. I'm still doing it too general. I need to go back and figure out what's the flourish, what's the touch that turns over another card about the character who is, who is Evan Smoke um, and make sure I'm always writing from that position. So you um one of the things that you uh are are known to talk about or have talked about in the past I mean we're shifting gears a little here I uh, hope you don't mind uh but this topic comes up a lot on the show and that is uh the idea of AI and one of the things that you are known to talk about is how AI impacts the creative industry uh I would love to chat with you about that if you're open to it because that's right now we're all taking a drink back in the uh uh, Writers Inc. Uh, studios because this is our drinking game every time AI comes up, but it's coming up more and more right now. And I would love to hear uh, what you think the impact is, and particularly like how's it impacting you when it comes to this series and the other, the rest of your work. Like, how are you, you know, how are you encountering this out in the wild? Well, so part of my job in writing thrillers and writing Orphan X is to stay out ahead of trends of what's happening right to try and, and as the world gets quicker um and as innovations accelerate the timeline crunches more and more i remember when i was writing the kill clause which was my fourth novel i wrote about how our phones have this crazy thing in them called gps services right. and that law enforcement can track them and i still remember like it went through the harper collins marketing team we're like oh my god that's so crazy like people people can track us just from using our phones you know, so it's amazing how quickly information comes in and then feels almost like defunct or leached of, right. of its novelty. But I started researching, Lone Wolf has a very powerful AI component to it, um, which you realize, which we won't get into too much here. But I really wanted to write about the ways that AI could be could, could start to function independently in ways that are threatening without buying into like a big Skynet fantasy, but to really show the risks of where it would come. Um and so it's a very important theme. And I talk to a lot of people. I talk to leading experts in AI companies in Silicon Valley, a few visionaries who are computer chip designers. I talk to theologians too, because huh. some of how what AI is going to represent, right? If we can all get our own bespoke entertainment, our own book written just for us at the push of a button, our own movies, our own world that we're filtered through, in a way it matches an evangelical description of hell where everybody is is far from God and far from each other. It's like C.S. Lewis is the great divorce. Yeah, right? yeah. So if we're all removed from, a, from an organizing sent overarching narrative and all of our entertainment is bespoke, so I'm not reading the same book that you're reading, if we can all punch a button and say, oh, I want an Orphan X book that's written about this and my Q's 111, so dial the vocab to that. 
and make it short. And I don't like violence about kids. And you can go boom and you get your own version. Yeah. And so on the one hand, that sounds amazing. But on the other hand, who the hell wants to read a book that's written only for you? Like we're losing the shared aspect of a communal narrative that we get to share. And so for me, the, the, so first of all, I think AI is coming and it's here. And actually I talked to JD a lot about this. Um, he's very helpful because he's somebody who is on the, on the cutting edge a lot of times with technology about the ways that we're going to have it, about the ways we already have it. If you use a Google, yeah. if you're using spell check, right, we already have this, but how do we keep it in its proper place? Because what we want is we want to be Sorcerer Mickey, right? Right. We don't want to be that AI is Sorcerer Mickey and we're the eyeless mops pulling buckets of water. Right. But we want to keep it in its place. And so I use AI um, in a lot of ways as a research assistant, though I fact check and rewrite everything that comes out of it. Yeah. But there's a couple of things I think that, that would be essential and protective for artists and frankly, for publishers and consumers and readers also. And they're threefold. And one of them is, is we did a bunch of polling at ITW, which you can access at the International Thriller Writers site. People really want transparency. Yeah. Like 97% of people said they would not want to read a book written by a dead author through AI, mm. written by a dead author. People really want to know. They don't want to be duped. They don't want to show up to something and discover that they've been engaging with something that's fake. So that's number one is both consumers and writers want there to be transparency and think everybody should be alerted to the fact if what the content they're engaging with has been generated by AI. The other thing is, is and what really drives us is, is, the, is the issue of human excellence. Um, when Deep Blue came around, everyone was dying to see how Kasparov might fare against Deep Blue. Right, yeah. None of us really want to turn, log into our computer and watch matches of Deep Blue playing Deep Blue. That's not really that exciting. I don't want to watch a basketball game watching an AI, bunch of AI people playing basketball, right? I want to watch Michael Jordan soar. That's why we watch the Olympics. I want, we want to see human excellence that's displayed. And so I think that, that we need to keep the author, the artist, the painter, the sculptor at the forefront of this and not just watch ones and zeros, designing ones and zeros in a way that's algorithmically designed to be palatable to us or that anticipates our needs and gives us our needs. We don't always know what our needs are, by the way. And you can see this a lot, not to detour too broadly here, but you can see it a lot with like pornography, which is just like flooding the internet. Right. And it's just decimating a lot of young men, young women for different reasons. Because if you can have everything you want all the time, basically it doesn't leave you with any functionality for the real world. And having everything at once sort of means that you don't have anything that's valued over everything else. So human excellence and keeping the the author, if we're talking novels, the creator at the forefront is really important. And the last thing I'd say is community. You know, we used to have appointment viewing in TV, right? Like mm -hmm. what's going to come next on like, holy shit, right. Heather Locklear just showed up on Melrose Place, right? What's going to happen next week? Right. You know, who shot JR? Everyone's waiting. We're all having these discussions around the proverbial water coolers. And if you look what happened, what's happened already with streaming is we've lost a lot of that, right? Yeah. If you say, oh, I, I love this show, White Lotus. It's like, oh, well, what app's it on? Oh, it's over here. Wait, I'm on. I'm only on the third season of Succession. Don't tell me anything. We have all these bulky, constipated conversations, yeah. right? We're not sharing in things in real time as they move forward. And people crave that. And one of the things about, let's say, Orphan X is I have a great community online on social media. You know, I go on tour every year. There's a wonderful reading community. And one of the things that's special about Orphan X or about any books, about your books, JD's books, one book comes out right, and everyone reads the same book and we can all have different reactions to it, but we're bound in a sense of community by the fact that we're at least interfacing with the same narrative and we can talk about it and we can joke about it. But once that becomes push button bespoke design, if I just fed it all into an AI machine and let everybody punch a button and get their optimally written Orphan X title, we lose the ability to have a shared experience. And I think more than anything, as we're getting atomized culturally, that sense of community around a shared creative experience becomes invaluable because it's something you that cannot be given to you through artificial intelligence. Yeah, that's fascinating because 
we i mean look at our culture has always aimed straight at something along the lines of bespoke content right i mean look i was a, a huge fan of like star trek next generation and that idea of the holodeck was so, like everybody wants that capability right never thought of it before as something that actually could be more isolating uh than anything uh well look it's also pleasure island in pinocchio right yes yeah i mean you get there more literary about it yeah i mean (laughs) what could be better than that right unlimited everything that you want and it's like well that's actually kind of hell because then nothing's individually appealing yeah you know yeah yeah i had i had a i had a lunch one time with a, a billionaire who had everything that he could possibly want yeah chocolates flown in from paris every morning the kitchen at his place was like the White House kitchen. He just ordered anything and they could make anything. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting when I talked to him and he was kind of saying, well, what like, what am I supposed to get excited about? I've seen everything. Right. I have everything. Like, what am I going to give a shit about? You know, Right. We're wired to look for novelty. And if if everything can come to us, you know, it will, like we'll run out of the capability of creating new experiences. Like that's. Yeah. And I know. like to you look, the Orphan X books change and they push and the antagonists yeah. get, I hope, stronger and more compelling. And Evan's very flawed. And the moral dilemmas, right. I hope, become more and more complicated. And what I'm hoping is that there is some discomfort at times for readers where they're they're thinking and experiencing things. That's my favorite stuff when I'm reading is when yeah. something catches me off guard, not just because it's a twist and turn, but because it stands a moral dilemma on its head. Yeah. Where all of a sudden I feel almost disoriented about what I'm contending with. And so I don't want to just write stuff that people prescribe. Here's the paint by number story that I want. And then they assign it and they get it out like this little pellet to a rat. That's exactly what they ordered. Right. Part of it is the unknown. And you know, I remember when I was in college, I used to walk back when remainders tables was not something that I really knew, right? When books get remaindered, I don't know if all your readers or all your listeners know this. Um, a lot of times they'll they'll put a stripe on the on the top spine um, or the top of the cover to mark it as used. And then they sell it for like two bucks in a bookstore. But I remember in college, I used to walk through and I'd come across the remainders table or all these different tables in the independent bookstores. And I'd, there'd be these weird books. Like, I remember that's how I first read Cornell West. It was like, what, race matters? Like, who's this guy? What's this What's this book? Sure, I'll try that. Here's a weird book of poetry that catches my eye. Yeah. And that browsing experience, we, we've lost in some ways with, let's say, Amazon ordering, where they say, you like this, you might like this, right? Yeah. They, they steer you algorithmically. Now, mine are really weird because I read so broadly. So mine's like, you might like this poetry collection and a book on Russian prison tattoos. I mean, my algorithm's pretty screwy, but nonetheless, that, that, that that kind of accidental stumbling upon something, it doesn't happen as much because everything sort of is narrowed to deliver to us what it thinks that we want from our past track. Right. Right. But I like the mutations, right? I like when the genes aren't all predictable where something comes out and kicks you in the head like you were talking about synchronicity earlier yeah. and sometimes things float into our awareness that we're not expecting and off we go. And, you know, all of a sudden I'm reading in a completely different direction. Right. Yeah. The tangents are what make all this fun. That's the, that's the stuff we enjoy the most. That's how I discovered half the authors I, I really and truly love. I found at, you know, random, sometimes at a uh, you know thrift store or something like that. But I mean, just randomly came across it. You know, and I hardly ever like the stuff that Amazon pushes on me. You know, maybe once in a while I find a title that I'm like, okay, yeah, that's that's cool. But it's always aimed at, well, you read these other books, so you'll like this book. And uh, it's almost never a good recommendation. <laughs> well, that's right. And look, yeah. it's it's we have a cool little community. You know, the the book readers, particularly in the thriller and genre world. Yeah it's a pretty special place. Like I think a lot of the writers, um, you know, I feel like we get a lot of our shadow out on the page, you know, so everybody's pretty amicable to contend with, but there's such a passion. It's such a, it's, it's so interesting when you're talking to people about what they're reading and what's lighting them up. There's so much room to have within it. And it's a, it's a very cool community to be part of. And I think, um, it's going to have people coming back if we if we continue to kind of elevate people. You know, I read 
Uh, one of the last books I read that I love is Dennis Lehane's Small Mercies. Right. Yeah. Just an extraordinary Good. piece. He's such a talent, you know, and it's like the fact that that's a book that we know it comes from him. It's one version of a book. We all read it. We all love it. You know, I, I'm, I always wait eagerly for the next Megan Abbott. Like you want to know what's happening in the mind of a human who has geared themselves towards excellence and creative endeavor. And it's just so palatable um, yeah. that I don't, I really don't see if, if, if writers and publishers hold the line, I don't see us giving into completely, you know, just whatever can be generated and fed to us. Yeah. yeah. We have a drive to want more. We, we do. And a uh, good thing we got all us authors out here uh, creating more for everybody. And speaking of more, uh, first up, let, let, I want to ask like, what's next for Evan Smoke? You already got it all planned out, plotted out, ready to go. So Lone Wolf <laughs> ends maybe on the biggest cliffhanger of the whole series. As my readers know, so you can jump into any of the books fresh and I kind of reset everything. But I like to end each book with a conclusion of the book. And then I usually turn over one more card that's sort of a premonition of what's coming in the next book. Yeah. And I can't give it away, but I would say Lone Wolf ends on the biggest cliffhanger of that effect. The whole story's wrapped up. But I do preview what's going to come in the 10th book and uh, of the Orphan X, this decology, at least for now. Um, and so I'm deep into that. And I can't I can't wait for people to read that. I'm getting wow. that I'm ready to go. So they'll and they'll get the they'll get to see that card turn on February 13th. That's when the uh, that's 2024, just in case people are listening in the future. But uh, the book comes out February 13th, just for Valentine's Day. Good Valentine's present. Yeah, there Assassination, you go. death, and execution. It's got it's a That's book with heart. I mean, there's a dog, there's a girl. Uh it's uh yeah, it's the perfect Valentine's gift. All right. Well, thanks for chatting with us about it. I can't wait to see uh uh what you know what comes next. Uh it's exciting. It's all very exciting. Thanks for chatting with us. Thanks for having me on, Kevin. It's good to see you. So I'm curious. Um how do you guys balance like the, if you have larger than life elements in your books, especially larger than life characters, how do you balance that against sort of that everyday life feel in your fiction? Crickets. <laughs> um, That's a hard I, question. Well, he's how many books in now? Did he say he was like, he's like eight or nine. Or this is number nine, nine in that series. Yeah. yeah. That it gets tricky. I mean, like in, in Scrivener, you know, I, I use Scrivener to write. So like right now I'm writing another book in the 4MK series. So I'm actually writing two in the series at the same time. One's a pre prequel and one's a, a sequel. Um, so what I basically do is I create the new Scrivener document and I take all the characters from the previous books I, that I know are going to be in the new book and I copy them and paste them over. Um, and anytime I have any type of descriptive element about a character, anything at all related to that character, I always drop it in their, their character sketch. So those character sketches grow, they come with me. Um, and it helps me, you know, keep everything consistent. Um, I guess what he's, what he's getting at is though it's different. Like he's basically got these, you know, this one unique character um, that in a lot of ways is larger than life, but at the same time, it's not like he's basically trying to ground him in reality. And that's where it gets tricky. And if you read the, these books, you know, like the one thing about Evan smoke that really gets you is like the awkward moments in his life or what make him a relatable character, what make him human. Yeah. If you take out those couple of things, like Greg had mentioned him standing at the mail slots at the, you know, at the condo and the building where, where he lives, like he doesn't know how to react to that. You put a gun in his hand. Absolutely. But it's, it's those moments you know, when he's forced, you know, when he's in the, an HOA meeting or something at, at his at his condo, at his building, like when he's forced to act like a normal human, um, those are the moments where the character really shines and feels real to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I loved what Greg said about, um, you know, his mentor said to him, you know, making you a killer is easy. What's hard is is keeping you human. And I really was thinking about what he said about, you know, the pursuit of human excellence. So we've got this ideal that comes out in superheroes, this, you know, perfection by being alone, which is the very traditional hero's journey type of story. And, you know, we've been shifting away from that. So he's like, okay, we've got this perfection, but what does that look like, this being alone when we're faced with intimacy, which I think is, you know, a more collective um, idea, which I think is really, really interesting. I realized I was um, exploring that in my own work when he talked about it. I, I had just semantics named it uh control 
versus connection. Cause of course I am doing brain chip stuff cause that's mm. what I do at work. And I'm like, when you want control literally versus having to break down those walls and, and have a human connection, I think it's a really interesting thing to explore, especially with all this AI stuff and, and stuff coming out. I think it's a really prominent theme right now. Yeah. I think like there's a lot of power in those, like the small moments in life. And I don't, I don't, I think there's like probably a quote that I'm going to like butcher, but you know, something about like those, those are the things you remember, you know, like when you look back on, you know, like your relationships or, you know, when, when people pass away, you know, it's, it's typically not those big over the top moments that we remember, you know, it's those small, intimate, you know, the inside joke, the, you know, the stuff that you wouldn't think would make a lasting impression. And I think like, that's, I think what really stands out when you're reading books, particularly in like that action adventure, you know, it's like those quiet, small moments, um, where like tiny pieces of the world or the reality are able to shine through and, it makes it easy for you as the reader to, to be in that world and to be with that character. Um, but I think that that just also is what kind of like breaks through like that over the top and, and does that intimacy, the vulnerability. It's those small moments. Yeah. And, and you know, he was talking about uh, Bond and Reacher a bit and I, I got thinking, I can't remember what movie it was, but Bond and the Bond girl are running away from the villain and they're running to the car and the car explodes. And, you know, he just kind of pulls out his keys and he looks at him and he chucks him away. And I mean, he's Bond, but that's a very human moment. And that's what I remember right. about the scene. I don't remember the chase or the villain or why the car blew up, but I remember him throwing those keys away. Yeah. See, human for me would have been like, I, I would have put those back in my pocket because I, they're, they're my keys. I can't, I can't throw away the keys to the car. <laughs> uh, so we talked a little bit about, you know, he had a multi-page action sequence uh, where he had to kind of maintain the tension and the pacing. How do you guys maintain tension and pacing in your action sequences? I'll, that reminded me of something that Lee Child said a, a while back. He writes the, the fast scenes slow and the slow scenes fast. Um, you know, so basically nothing is happening with the characters. Nothing's moving forward. Knock that out in a sentence or two. Um, and then when it comes to the fast paced stuff, he draws that out. You know, like every punch, every you know emotional feeling, every reaction, he, he, he creates all that. Um, Greg does a lot of the, the same things. Um, he tends to throw a little bit more humor into it. Um, but you, you have to be careful with this sort of thing because it, it can be it can create fatigue in your readers. Um, I've got a book called The Caller's Game um, that basically starts off, you know, at the very beginning, it's almost like somebody putting their foot on the accelerator to the car and they, they don't lift that foot off until the end of the book. Like the last chapter is really the only place where it slows down. And I've had a lot of emails from people that said they can't read that book at night. You know, a lot of people read to fall asleep and things like that. Like it's just, it creates so much anxiety as they're reading. Um, they just, they can't deal with it. Um, it's better to, to balance it out. You know, like in my forum case series, you know, I tend to create a chapter that, you know, is very high paced, you know, act, it does create that anxiety. Then the next chapter kind of brings you back. It's almost like a roller coaster. You need those hills in, on that roller coaster. You can't continue to just go up, up, up and up. Um, you can do it, which is what Greg did with the scene in, in particular, but then he still had to bring it back home um and, and kind of wrap it up and give everybody a chance to breathe yeah i think we've talked about it like music before you have to have those tempo changes where you're ramping up and then you have that room to breathe and that's really important and of course the order of your obstacles is important it's probably pretty obvious but you want to start with the small ones like saving the dog and yeah think about are you ramping it up every time because you don't want to have a lesser obstacle on that journey because it's not going to feel right so although i could see doing something like that, like having that literal save the cat moment as the last thing, <laughs> because then it would be like the come down, uh, for the action. Like I could see, see leveraging that to kind of get a reaction out of the, the reader. Does that make any sense? I don't know if that makes sense. Okay. Uh, I think so, it does. Like in that falling action, you got to have something that's a little bit down. So in, you it's know, almost, it yeah, it's almost like last. comic relief to me. Yeah. 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 Uh, so what about, um, cause he and I talked a bit about bespoke on demand entertainment and, uh, he, he kind of sees that as like an apocalypse, uh, of a sort. Uh, what, what do you guys think of that? Like how, how important is shared experience in our fiction? 
he honestly scared the shit out of me with that, you know, because I've never, I've never thought about AI and these other things on, under that context, but he, he's right. You know, like, I think one of the things that makes us human that causes us to, to move forward is that drive, you know, that, that need to want to experience something new, um, you know, either uh, individually or as a group or whatever, but like, there's always that brass ring that's hanging off in the distance. Um, if, you know, if you can grab that brass ring anytime you want, and now all of a sudden it's not unique anymore. It's not exciting anymore. And you don't care. Um, you know, if we've get and ended up in a civilization where we literally have everything that we want, the second that we want it, it's going to be a very boring world. Um, and that, that's where we're heading, you know, which is what Greg pointed yeah, out. I, and I, I hadn't considered I think Greg before. Called I it hell, right? He, he did. And yeah. that's, he's which, right. Yeah. That's interesting. I couldn't help but think of, um, Game of Thrones, you know, cause I had read the books. Um, and so, I, I knew kind of what was going to happen. And I know a lot of, you know, like the Red Wedding and then all those videos of people who knew what was going to happen at the Red Wedding, videoing the people who had no idea just for that, you know, that reaction, because it's like you had a reaction and now you know that they're going to have a reaction. And I think some of the appeal um, of why Game of Thrones, you know, was such a global phenomenon is because, you know, you kind of had that um, ability to like bring non-readers into that reader's world on, you know, and really share that. And I think that's, I think that's really important. I, I feel strongly that I don't think there's a reason to, to, to be alarmed at this idea uh, because here's the way I see it. The the shift I see happening in the world, and I'm I'm writing a lot about this under that whole artisan age label right now. But the shift that I'm seeing in the world is we've got this new commodity emerging. Like we've had sort of the information age, you know, the information economy, and we you know attention economy and that sort of thing for a while now. And I think what we're what we're going to kind of evolve into is like a um, perspective. Uh, economy like you know our individual perspective is something that can become a commodity uh, that other people are going to want to experience and as writers like we we get to tap into that so I think what's going to happen is we're going to see people do embracing bespoke content um, I will be one of them but then I'm going to go out and seek out like actual human produced content because there's just going to be a, a sort of diminishing return on the stuff, like if, if I'm the only one providing all my own entertainment by describing it to an AI, I mean, I know me, there's a reason why I sometimes hire someone else to do things like my, my book covers or whatever, even though I can do them myself. It's because every cover I make is going to look like Kevin Tomlinson made that cover. So sometimes I just want something new. So I think the same thing is going to apply to our, our content, our stories, you know, we'll get yeah. to a point where we want a different perspective. I thought where Jenna was going with that AI was that they're just going to be like, write the last book so I can read it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Game of Thrones. I, you know, maybe, I don't know. I just, I think there's, you know, the more technology it's, I, I think it's sort of fascinating, like thinking back to sort of old science fiction and dystopian and how, you know, we were supposed technology was supposed to like bridge a gap and bring people together. And in so many ways, it just proves to be more and more isolating. And the more technology does, you know, the narrower your world can get pretty fast. Um, and, and then because it taps into the reward system of your brain so well, like mm -hmm. you're, driven almost to, you know, continue in those isolating bubbles. And yeah. so you're saying we're rats there. <laughs> did, Despite there was, all my rage. No, there was a study and I forget what it was where they did uh, direct implants into rats. I'm sorry. I'm going to go all nerd science on you and they could eat and drink or get a sensation that was like an orgasm and they yeah. just pressed the orgasm button until they died. Yeah. So that's what we're becoming, yeah. right? Well, I think I I'm going to throw a counterpoint out there because like right now you can put on, a, you know, whether it's a, a meta headset or the new Apple Vision Pro and you can sit front row center for the new, the, the latest Taylor Swift concert if you want to. And it's going to be the best view of that concert you're ever going to get. You're right up in front. You see everything. You know, these are not the cheap seats. Uh, I don't know anybody that would trade that experience 
versus actually getting physical tickets to go to the show and stand in that crowd, you know, yeah. with a, you know, 50, 60, 100, you know, a thousand people just screaming like that feeling that Absolutely. you get when you're at a live event. Uh, it's not, there's no way to replicate that. Um, yeah. So, so hopefully, you know, yeah. we're going to find something somewhere in the middle of, of all of this. Yeah, people, I think it's just people like still Greg go said. to the movies. Yeah. yeah, nobody wants to watch AI play basketball against AI. There's nothing fun about that at all, right? right. So, right, exactly right. Yeah, it just goes to show the more importance of human uh, community and shared experience. And I do miss those times when we'd have, you know, shows we were watching that we could talk to everyone about. Now I have like nobody. Sometimes not even my husband because he doesn't watch the like sci-fi stuff I like to watch. And I'm like, all right, I just watch this by myself. It is kind of isolating and sad. So yeah, let's be more pro community, I guess. All right. And with that, JD, who is up next week? Next week, we've got Kara Peacock on. She's the author of Mother Knows Best, Living Proof, No Time to Die and Die Again Tomorrow. Uh, she has a degree in journalism from New York University and a master in bioethics from Columbia. Her latest novel is called Baby X and Tech Tackles Bioethics. Uh, releases, I believe it's March 5th. So Kara Peacock. All right. Excellent. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.